We have a special request. What drives Shawnee and I to do this podcast and our day jobs is to try and help investors reach their financial goals. Whether you're in retirement or just starting out, we want to hear your story and how Morningstar has helped you build a better financial future for your family. We're filming a short set of testimonial videos that will go through your journey. If you're a Sydney-based Morningstar Premium subscriber and you'd like to take part, the link to the surveys in our episode notes. If we pick you, we'll extend your premium subscription for a year as a thank you for helping out. Thanks and looking forward to hearing from you. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Investing Compass. Before we begin, please note that the information contained in this podcast is general in nature, does not take into consideration your personal circumstances, situation, or needs. So, Shani, shocker, right? We are going to do another listener requested episode. It's almost <laughs> like if, quite a few. I know. It's almost like if people write things in, we'll just do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, send us send us messages, mm-hmm. right? That's that's the uh, that's the key point here, but. We did our first and to this date, our only three-part series looking at shares. So in the first episode, we looked at finding great companies. In the second episode, we looked at finding a company at a compelling price. And in the third episode, we looked at finding the right share for you. And what the listener wanted was some real-world examples of different shares that fit that criteria. So today, we're going to take a look at a couple examples of great companies and then we'll look at a couple examples of going through a valuation process. Mm-hmm. And for those that wanted to listen to that three-part series, it's titled Swipe Right for Shares. Yeah, very creatively named, right? Yeah, something like that. So <laughs> building off those episodes, our hope is that walking through this process will make that previous episode a little bit more tangible and help investors do this themselves. So let's start today with finding a great company. And this is a concept of a company having a moat or a sustainable competitive advantage. If we go back to the episode on one of our share trilogies, we started off by giving a little bit of a definition of a sustainable competitive advantage and then dove into things we could look for in financial statements that indicates moats. So let's do the same thing today, but this time we'll look at specific companies. So where are we going to start, Mark? Okay. Well, we we have this longstanding joke where we're talking about the Warren Buffett drinking game, (laughs) which is very complicated, right? Every Mm -hmm. time we say Warren Buffett, you drink. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So- Pretty easy to follow along. But Warren Buffett, he popularized the concept of a moat. So I think it makes sense that when we explore these real-life examples of competitive advantages, we do it by looking at alcohol manufacturers. Yes, energy. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, so perhaps if you were drinking a product of one of these companies, maybe you get more points. I mm-hmm. don't know. But, uh, but this was also one of the industries that we used as an example in the first part of the Share Trilogy. So in that episode, we talked about how different moats apply to different industries, given the specifics of those industries and the competitive environment in which they operated. And as a reminder, we have five moat sources that we use at Morningstar, and they are efficient scale, network effect, switching costs, intangible assets, and cost advantage. In the alcoholic beverage industry, the two prevalent moats are cost advantage and intangible assets. And that's because brand and scale matter, which we'll get into in more detail, So what companies are we going to look at today, Mark? Okay, so one name that I've talked about before, and this was the only meaningful purchase that I made during that COVID market drop, and that's Constellation Brands. So it's something I own, something I wish I own more of, and I'll certainly buy more if the market pulls back. 
And so that's our first company. And then I wanted to pick something local that I've actually looked at and didn't ultimately buy, and that's Treasury Wine Estates. You seem to own a lot of alcoholic beverage companies, Mark. What does that really say <laughs> about you? Yeah, well, it's that same Buffett thing, right? Circle of competence. Yeah, so I'm exactly. staying within my circle of competence. Okay, so you're building in investing angles into your jokes. Basically. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, really the complete package here, Shani, right? <laughs> so, you know, anyone listening to this, lock up your daughters when the investing compass the podcast goes comes town, to town. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> Why don't you give us a quick overview of these two uh, of these two companies? All right. So let's start with Constellation Brands. Constellation Brands is a global liquor giant that has spirits, wine, and beer brands. They have some widely known wine brands, including Kim Crawford over in New Zealand and Robert Mondavi in the US and some niche whiskey and vodkas. But the name of the game for Constellation is beer with Corona, Medela and Pacifico. The headline, of course, being Corona. Yeah, which in my opinion is a pretty terrible beer. Yeah. But <laughs> they've built an amazing brand and it's sort of synonymous with sitting on a beach without a worry in the world. Let's do Treasury Wine Estates first. Give us a little bit of an overview. All right. So Treasury has a pretty diverse wine portfolio and lots of brands, but the biggest and most known is, of course, Penfolds. Yeah. You know what else they also have? Yeah. Is Pepper Jack. <laughs> We've and got a good story about Pepper we, Jack. We do have a good story. We yeah. actually, our mate, Laura, who we used to work with and who mm -hmm. we caught up with this morning, mm -hmm. she has a good story about Pepper Jack. So she overindulged one night. With two bottles two of Pepper bottles Jack. Two bottles of Pepper Jack. Um, we do have permission to tell the story. We did say we were going to speak about it. Exactly. And it led to it led to a bit of a break for red wine, which we learned this morning finally ended, what was this, like nine months after? Yeah. Like, well, more. Like, it would have been two years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Jeez, time flies, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, finally ended a couple of weeks ago. Exactly. I think she was just trying to prop up the share price, you know? Yeah. No, it was, yeah. it was a valiant attempt. It did not work yeah. for any Treasury Wine Estate uh, yeah. shareholders here. <laughs> um, but anyway, Constellation, if we compare these two, is a significantly larger company than Treasury. So Constellation is a market cap of $44 billion, and that's how we measure the size of companies. So that's the number of shares multiplied by the share price. And then Treasury Estates comes in at around $8 billion. And both of those are significantly smaller than industry leaders like Diageo that has a market cap of $122 billion. If we look at sales, Constellation has revenue in 2020 of $8.3 billion and Treasury had sales of $2.65 billion. Okay, so we're going to start to explore if these are great companies and why don't we start with intangible assets. So intangible assets are assets that a company has that are not on the balance sheet, which means they are not something tangible like a factory. So the major intangible asset that companies have is brand. And a great brand is something that people have an emotional connection to that elicits a desire by consumers to be associated with it or what it represents. The great brands are simple and have authenticity. And great brands are a signal signaling mechanism for consumers that try to build social currency by being associated with a brand. With that lens, let's look at these two companies. So why don't we start with Constellation? Okay. So as you said earlier, when you were giving the overview, Constellation has a number of wine and liquor brands and even has an investment in Canopy, which is a Canadian cannabis company. <laughs> but really, the company starts and ends with its Mexican beer portfolio, which, as we said, is headlined by Corona and also has Pacifico and Modelo. So it's hard to think of a better brand than Corona. And I talked about this a little bit earlier that it elicits a beach holiday and signals that you're laid back and carefree. And, you know, to a lesser extent, the same thing is true about Pacifico and Modelo. Although I will say that all of this is much more prevalent in the U.S., which is Constellation's largest market. 
And I would also say that Constellation's beers are the go-to orders with Mexican food. And that is, especially in the U.S., although here too, it's a really fast-growing segment in the U.S. So there's 65,000 Mexican restaurants and almost 18% of all the restaurants in Texas and California are Mexican. So some interesting Mexican food facts for you. <laughs> um, the other thing that I'll say that's pretty noteworthy and I think should be pointed out, that Corona's brand seems perfectly placed to extend into the hard seltzer market, which is eroding beer sales. So Corona and seltzer have kind of a similar vibe, as you would say, yeah, Shawnee. They do. Yeah. So I think it's safe to say that with Constellation, there's a really strong brand, which is a good start in determining the company has a sustainable competitive advantage or moat. So why don't you walk us through Treasury Wine Estates? All right. So Treasury has a stable of brands, but 63% of earnings come from Penfolds. So that should be the focus. I would argue that Grange is definitely a brand, but one with a very small market because of the price point. Penfolds is known, but doesn't really elicit anything meaningful, which means maybe a result of their breadth or the range of their wines. I took a peek at Dan Murphy's online and you can buy a bottle for $11 and a bottle of Grange for close to $1,000. Yeah, so that is quite a range. Mm. And I, I don't know, maybe it's because I didn't grow up here, but I find Penfolds utterly confusing. <laughs> and so I can't figure out what all those different bins mean. And so generally, I'll either avoid it or I just sort of go by price um, to try to figure out what's the higher quality wine. Mm. And, you know, the one thing people give me Penfolds every once in a while is gifts. And I know this is shallow, but I don't know you know, how much they like me based on this yeah. gift. So I, I go online and I look up the price. Yeah, and, and I think like a disclaimer here is Mark does know a bit about wine, so it's not somebody who never orders it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like <laughs> I, I feel like I do okay when we go out for lunch ordering yeah. wine. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> anyway, this isn't, a, this isn't a great place for Penfolds to be. Um, but one thing that I will add is that Shawnee is difficult to order wine for because you don't drink red wine. Mm. So it obviously restricts any sort of ordering. And two years ago, I made a real effort to get you into red wine, but, uh, and we were getting there. We were getting there. I mean, I was starting pretty light and I was, yeah, we were working working your way up. We started with like a Beaujolais and then we were moving into lighter Pinots Mm -hmm. and then, yeah. The progress stopped. The progress stopped. Do you want to tell us why? Do you want to tell us why? (laughs) Well, you, you had a little incident with a friend. It was sort Mm -hmm. of, it was sort of like like Laura's incident, mm, but you but were not the you were not the drinker. I was just the unwilling participant of cleaning the up. Impact. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, cleaning up. So why don't we just leave it at that? Exactly. Yeah. Not that not that any of your friends listen to this. No, they don't. <laughs> okay. So I think what we can say, besides our little aside, is that Treasury Wine Estates doesn't seem to be doing great on the sustainable competitive advantage front in terms of brand. And this isn't that surprising because it's hard to scale a brand when you have so many different labels. So does a consumer even know when they walk into a liquor store in Australia that Penfolds and Pepper Jack are made by the same company? And I guess even more importantly, would they even think that was a good thing if they do knew, if they did know? So, you know, as wine consumers, I think we have this sort of idyllic picture of wine, like, you know, two farmers or a couple out there um, <laughs> that have left their corporate jobs to realize their dream of owning a vineyard. And they handpick all the grapes and they lovingly produce the wine. And, you know, there's like a golden retriever running around. Um, Mark, so- this is very reminiscent of your dream. Yeah, no, I want to <laughs> I want to open a winery, which I pre-named Pinstripe. So in about 20 years, look for it in stores. Yeah, I can't say that I spend a lot of time pondering 
the stereotypical white boy from Connecticut, but I feel like you're fitting the bill. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Why don't we, uh, why don't we move on? We moved on from your story. Yeah. Okay. Seems like a wise course. So, um, it is worth saying now that what we just went through was our opinion of these brands. Perhaps you agree or perhaps you feel differently. But in addition to being subjective, emote is also something that becomes evident when you start looking at the financial statements of a company. And that's where we see the impact of being a great company. Before we get to that, let's talk about the other common moat source with the alcoholic beverage industry, and that's cost advantage. And it basically means that as a company, you have scale in the industry and you're able to lower your cost through that scale. Okay, so let's think about these two businesses and the benefits of scale. So even though Constellation owns wine brands and liquor brands, primary business is beer. So to produce beer, you need grain, hops, yeast, and water. And all of those ingredients are commodities. And I know that, you know, maybe we'll get some emails from, you know, the hipster bearded beer police, <laughs> right, that start talking about special hops. Is that a segment that you get a lot of emails from, Mark? I, I don't know. I yeah. don't know. <laughs> but, um, but maybe it'll start. But right. yeah, because, you know, they'll talk about these specialty hops that go into this like 19% nitro sour <laughs> that costs like $300. <laughs> but we're talking about Corona here, remember. So it's a little bit different. Um, so all the ingredients are commodities. You make it in a factory and it doesn't take long to make, meaning you don't need to store and age it anywhere. And that means that scale matters. There are efficiencies when you have bigger factories that are needed to support larger volumes of beer. You have efficiencies when you're buying the quantity of ingredients needed to produce these larger volumes of beer. And so how does that compare to the wine industry, Shani? Well, wine is a little different. The first difference is that wine grapes can only be grown in very specific parts of the world. That means that the land is very valuable and much more costly than regular agricultural land. That is especially true in the prestige regions around the world. The other interesting thing about wine is that there is an inverse relationship between the grape yield of the land and the quality of the wine. So growing less grapes per acre means better wine when you can sell for more money. So producing more wine means buying more land and you can't increase the capacity of the land without lowering the quality of the wine. And this limits the scalability of the wine business and there are certainly areas where uh, companies like Treasury can get benefits of scale, like in buying bottles and through distribution, but they're much more limited than the beer business because obviously the nature of producing wine is different. Yeah. No, I've been taking notes for Pinstripe. <laughs> okay. I'm sure Pinstripe will benefit from my knowledge. Will you hire me there, Mark? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Um, so we've talked about brand and we've talked a little bit about cost to produce beer and wine, but what does this all have to do with finding a great company? Yeah, well, one of the great things about having a brand is that people are willing to pay more for it than they would for a comparable competitor's product. And that shows up in margin. The margin is the difference between what something is sold for and how much profit you make. And there are various margins that look at different measures of profits, but the principle is pretty simple. Selling things for more than it costs you to produce them is a profit. The higher that difference, the better it is for the company. When we look at the income statement, we can calculate a couple different measures of margin. We start with the top line on an income statement, and that is the revenue, which equals the number of units sold multiplied, multiplied by the price per unit. So why don't you walk us through these couple different types of margin, Shani? All right. So the common types of margin that people look at are net margin, gross margin, and operating margin. And all three of these figures are represented as percentages. Basically, net margin is looking at what comes in from a revenue perspective and what comes out the other side as profits. So you're taking out all the costs associated with producing the product or service and all other corporate expenses to run the company. 
Gross margin represents just the direct costs of producing the goods or services. So in this case, you're ignoring all the corporate overhead costs and all the indirect costs of running a business. Finally, operating margin ignores any sales that occur that are non-core. For instance, if Treasury sold a winery, we would exclude it because their core business is selling wine, not selling off assets. So you divide the operating income or core income by revenue. Okay, so when we look at any of the margins of two different companies, we are able to see the impact of the cost it takes to produce the goods, in this case, wine and beer, and the company's ability to sell those goods for as much as possible. Now, margin can bounce around a bit. So you want to look at margin over a longer period of time, say five years, or just look at the trend over time. When we look at the margin of treasury and constellation, we're able to see on the financial statements the impact of having a great brand and a not-so-great brand. And from having a scalable business, it drives down costs as the company grows. So take us through it, Johnny. All right. So let's compare Treasury and Constellation's margin. All of these figures are for the last five years. So if we look at net margin, we can see Treasury has net margin of 11.99% and Constellation has a net margin of 21.54%. And that's a pretty significant difference. That means that every time you spend a dollar on a bottle of Penfold, Treasury makes around 12 cents. And every time you spend a dollar on Corona, Constellation keeps 21.5 cents. And we can see the same differences in other measures of margin. Gross margin for Constellation is just north of 50%, and Treasuries is 38.5%. Operating margin is 30% for Constellation, and it's 11% for Treasury. So just looking at margin, I know which company I want to own, because selling goods is hard. You have to produce them, you have to ship it somewhere, you have to market them, and then Once you finally convince somebody to buy it, you want to keep as much as possible. And as we said, Constellation has a net margin of 21.54%, and that is very high. The S&P 500 overall has a net margin of around 12.5%, so it is an impressive number. Mm -hmm. And the other area we see moat play out is in return on invested capital. This financial ratio represents the amount of profit generated for each dollar invested into the company by bondholders and stockholders. Successful companies are able to invest their capital and receive a return at a higher rate than their weighted average cost of capital. Simplistically, that means that a company borrows money at 5%, invests it in the business, and earns a 10% return. That's a very good place to be. Yeah, and over time, competition generally erodes the returns that companies get on their investments. And most companies, those without moats, see their return on invested capital match their weighted average cost of capital. It means you continue in business and you can grow, but you aren't making those outsized returns that accrue to investors. So let's take a look at Constellation and Treasury. So Constellation has a return on invested capital of 10.15%, and Treasury has 7.14%. The S&P 500 has averaged around 8% over the past decade or so. So that 3% or so difference between the two companies matters over time because that will compound and then accrue to shareholders. And Angus, our analyst that covers Treasury, points out that the company return on invested capital has considerably trailed the weighted average cost of capital. Angus nicely sums up Treasury in listing the reasons why the ROIC trails the WACC. He says that it's due to the substantial inventory requirements of winemaking, the high cost of land ownership, difficult price competition in a very fragmented market, particularly at mid-tier price points, and Treasury's lack of scale economies and brand intangible assets versus larger peers. Okay. And that is an example of how we can explore the business model and operating environment of a company to assess the competitive position and determine if a moat exists. And unsurprisingly, our analysts give Constellation a wide moat rating 
and have a no moat rating on treasury. So as investors, we want to buy great companies, but we also want to buy them at a compelling price. So let's shift gears here and we'll start looking at valuation levels, which we explored in the second episode of our share trilogy. All right. So why don't we start with taking a look at a company that our analysts believe is overvalued. And we can take a look at Woolies, which we believe is 68% overvalued. Johannes, who is our analyst that covers Woolies, believes it's worth $24 a share, and it's currently trading at over $40 a share when we are recording this episode. And to value shares, our analysts use a discounted cash flow model. That means that they need to project cash flows out into the future and then discount them back to get the value of the share today. So the first thing that needs to be done to build these models is to project out revenue. So in this case, Johannes needs to look at the competitive landscape of supermarkets. Woolies currently has about a 30 or has 37% of the market, and Johannes believes that they will maintain that. We'll get into how they maintain that in a second, but keeping your market share means that any revenue growth will come from the overall growth of the industry. And unsurprisingly, supermarkets are not growing very quickly. Over the next five years, Johannes believes Woolies will average 3% in annual revenue growth. And we've seen a bit of a surge of revenue in 2020 and 2021 as lockdowns took away other dining options and more people just shopped at supermarkets. But overall, there isn't much growth in the industry other than population growth. If you're visualizing a discounted cash flow model, that gives us the top line with revenue, but we need to figure out what comes out the other side for earnings and cash flow. We're once again looking at margin here because we need to figure out how much of those sales Woolies gets to keep. Pricing is heavily influenced by the competitive environment, so we need to take a look there again. The competitive landscape with supermarkets has changed as the discount supermarket Aldi has gained market share since they opened their first store in 2001. And Mark alluded earlier to how Woolies is maintaining their market share, and Johannes believes they will do that by passing along the cost savings from efficiency programs to customers through their lower prices. And that's an important point because in a different operating environment, cost savings would be kept by the company instead of passing it along to consumers. And we've seen Woolies margins erode slightly after 2016 when the impact of Aldi on the local market really started to be felt. Morningstar Premium is designed to help you reach your investing goals. Our coverage spans over 50,000 securities and 2,000 funds and ETFs. Sign up to a four-week free trial through the link in the episode notes to access our global equity best ideas for our top picks across borders. Find shares with sustainable, above-average dividend payouts and the best opportunities at home with five-star Aussie stocks. A Morningstar Premium subscription includes a share-side investor plan, allowing you to track all of your investment holdings in one place. And take advantage of ShareSite's investment performance and tax reporting that has been built specifically for the needs of self-directed investors. If you love premium after your four-week trial and choose to subscribe, your subscription may be tax-deductible if you derive income from the share market. Sign up for a free trial today. The final step is the weighted average cost of capital, which is the rate we use to discount back those future cash flows to the present day. Johannes has a weighted average cost of capital for Woolies of 7.2%. So the result of Johannes's model is a valuation of $24. Yeah, and we can sense check this number a bit. So Woolies currently trades at a price-to-earnings ratio of 32, and that is really, really high. The Ford P ratio for 2022 is at 28, which is also really high, especially when we look at the economics of the industry. We've got a net margin of under 3%. And remember, that compares to 21.5% for Constellation and 12% for Treasury. We've also, so we've got an industry with low margins and slow growth 
And all things being equal, that is not a place we would expect to see a price-to-earnings ratio of 32 times earnings. At our valuation of 24, that represents a more reasonable forward price-to-earnings ratio of 17. Let's look at an example of a company that our analysts believe is undervalued. So what should we pick, Mark? All right. I picked I picked something just for you. Okay. So are you excited about this? I'm really excited for this. Okay. So the company we're going to look at is Yum China Holdings. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> So this is a company that was created in 2016. It was a spinoff from Yum! Brands of all of their restaurants in China. And the reason I picked Yum! China is because one of those brands is KFC, which is your favorite, Shani. Uh They also own Pizza Hut and Taco Bell and some local restaurants in China. But but yeah, KFC is what you really like. Mm And then, Shani, Taco Bell. You took your first trip to Taco Bell with me. That's true. We went there um, in Ballina on a trip to Byron Bay. Yeah. And so what are your thoughts? Yeah, it was it was okay. I think I gave it like a 7 out of 10. A 7 out of 10. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do prefer Guzman. Do you remember when we were there, they forgot to fill some guy's order correctly? And yeah, he, like, yeah. he stormed he back in and started screaming at them? Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, the dining experience, I think, was impacted mm, a, little, a little bit. Uh, yeah, yeah. But anyway. Well, I think we chose to eat it in the car because we just didn't want to be there. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But uh, but let's get back to Yum China. So not only does Shani love KFC, but the Chinese also love KFC. So Yum China operates 8,400 restaurants across China. And we think that Yum China is valued at $86 US a share, and it's currently trading at $53.49 a share, which means it's 38% undervalued. So if you're not too distracted by thoughts of fried chicken, Shani, why don't you take us through the <laughs> prospects <laughs> for Yum China? All right. So the company has been hit by COVID-related issues, but we are looking forward here. Despite having around 8,400 restaurants, China is a big place, and they're still in rapid expansion mode. And our analysts forecast the number of restaurants will grow 11% a year, which helps them meet their target of 20,000 total restaurants by 2026. Based on this growth in new restaurants, we see overall revenue growing 15% a year over the next five years. Okay, so let's turn our attention to how this top line growth translates into bottom line, into the bottom line. We've given Yum a wide moat rating based on intangible assets related to the brand of the restaurants and cost advantage from buying scale. Now, we expect this cost advantage to expand as more restaurants are open. So based on this, we actually see the margin expanding over the next five years with operating margins increasing from around 10% to 15%. So this increase in margin means that earnings growth will be faster than revenue growth. So we see earnings growth in the high teens over the next five years. Those are the main drivers of our discounted cash flow model. And using that as context, when we look at relative valuation measure, it should make more sense than that this company is trading for 38 times earnings given the growth prospects of the company. Exactly, exactly. So I do hope that today's episode provided some valuable lessons for investors. There are narratives that seem to take over and capture the market's imagination. But as investors, we need to take a step back and look at the actual business and answer the fundamental question, is this a great business? Warren Buffett has a famous quote saying that he looks for businesses that an idiot can run because he knows that someday one will. <laughs> so running a large wine business is hard. Comparatively, running a large beer business with amazing brands is a lot easier. The other thing that I hope people learned is how to think about valuation. We aren't asking people to build a discounted cash flow model here. We are simply saying that you should think about a couple key measures of a business. What will drive revenue? 
a rising tide that lifts all boats, market share gains against competitors, rising prices, and how much will the company get to keep of that revenue? That should put some context around even the relative valuation measures like price to earnings. And you should figure out, should you be paying a huge premium to the market for slow growing and low margin business? Or should you look for businesses that are growing quickly with high margins? So I think that's a wrap, Shani. Yeah, we've covered a lot. There's wine, beer, fried chicken. Yeah, once again, sounds like a pretty good yeah. <laughs> uh, pretty good Friday night, right? Yeah. Well, anyway, thank you guys very much for listening. As we said before, send us an episode suggestion and we will do it. Um, <laughs> seems, uh, seems obvious at this point. But we'd also love any comments or ratings that you may have. And also, there is a note, and we will play a commercial, or we have played a commercial during this. There is a note that we would love to get a testimonial from anyone that is Sydney-based and wants to say something nice about Morningstar. So thank you guys very much for joining us. Any advice in this podcast is general advice or regulated financial advice under New Zealand law prepared by Morningstar Australasia Proprietary Limited and or Morningstar Research Limited without reference to your financial objectives, situations or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest. To obtain advice for your own situation, contact a financial advisor.